Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase, kids, in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious, bear to the absurd. Hold on to your friggin' lug nuts. It's time for an overall. Let's do it. Have you back with me once again? This audio experience. This is uh, it's an interesting thing. So much I find interesting in life, and I, I don't ever want to lose that. But this whole radio thing I've been doing for so long, and the incessant need that I have to get behind a microphone and deliver the mail, whether anybody listens or not, it's just the way it is. Uh, I was talking with a few people this past week who I produce podcasts for and some possible uh, new voices, and and I'm reminded of how crowded it is now. You know, when I started radio in 1997, uh, there was no such thing as podcasting, right? So you just had a certain amount of stations to listen to things to, which kind of falls in line a little bit of what I want to talk about this morning. But you only had certain outlets. And whatever you got from that outlet is what you got from it. You know, you wouldn't go to sports talk radio and expect to hear jazz. Everything was very clearly defined. Those, um, I guess you could say, uh, file drawers are are far more full than they've ever been in the past. And I always go to the Jurassic Park theory when it comes to podcasting, which is just because you can make dinosaurs doesn't mean you should. It's not everything's a good idea. Uh, and with the advent of iPhones and like that, uh, I was talking with someone who might be a new client, and um, she said she had spent a bunch of money on podcast uh, training or, or videos or some sort of course to take to be a podcaster. And I'm thinking... This reminds me of being, you know, that, that you have to be somehow certified to become a life coach. My grandmother was a freaking life coach just by the fact that she made the best mashed taters in the world. But that's a whole other deal. Uh, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. And the average podcast lasts about six episodes. Because unless you're doing it in a way that um, has sustainability, what's the point of starting? So... Uh, I caution the people I work with about that. And uh, unless you're in for it as a, as a marathon and not a sprint, I mean, you could do a sprint. See, I'm going to do five episodes and call it a day. But to me, I like the long game. I like I like coming in. This is important for me to get in. It gets me out of what I do most of the week to some greater or lesser degree. I mean, I do a lot of audio work, but I don't do my own stuff. I'm working on everybody else's stuff, which is fine and good, and I enjoy that. So on Saturday morning, you know, I'll... Uh, Get the coffee going. I got a new coffee cup here. You can't see it, but you can hear it. Listen to this. <sighs> cup of coffee right there. Um, it's like a ritual for me. It's like going to the gym for me. So Saturday morning has become this thing that I, I get in the chair for half hour and throw it to the wind and see where it lands. And uh, I'm doing my part. And I think that's a, a, a deep thing that's really important to me. And I think should be important to people is do what you can, where you are with what you have. So this is what I have right now. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, I've sat in on uh, live radio here in Chicago, which is a totally different animal than doing a recorded podcast. And while it has great moment for me, and I have zero doubt that I could, you know, summon up the gas in the tank to pull it off, I don't know, about five days a week, three hours a day, it's a grind. Um, there's something about having this microphone that nobody can take away uh, that has great moment for me. And when I say take away, it's, it's obviously in a gentle fashion for the most part. 
Everywhere I've gone, it was a beginning, a middle, and an end. This is the only microphone, the one in front of me right now, that has not been pulled by somebody else saying, you know, we're going a different direction, your contract ended, uh, we're flipping the station to country music, whatever it is. This microphone, I'm in charge of. And so I am so thankful for those of you who check in on Saturdays and spend some time with me or whenever you listen to the show and uh, that you find value in it, especially the subscribers, as I mentioned many times and will mention all the time. Uh, you have a lot of choices you can uh, use your money for and supporting what I do here. Uh, it, that, that, uh, that's a very cool thing. So thanks for doing that. Last Sunday, I had done this show on Saturday, and so the next day, Sunday, uh, I was at Wrigley Field with Randy Hunley, who uh, I just finished working on this book with, and I was uh, just this side of blown away because I didn't know why we were going to Wrigley. I don't follow, but I love the Cubs and watch the games wherever I can, uh, but I have been to Wrigley Field in uh, 10 years probably, eight years for sure, and it's changed over time because it's a different, the game's the same, but the breads and circuses around it are very, very different than when I was a kid. And I got this purist streak in me that thinks I can still stand outside on Waveland Avenue for a dollar and get a bleacher. How come it doesn't cost the same as it did when I was a kid? Well, that's because it's the 21st century. But Randy called and asked if I want to go to the game. And I said, absolutely. I'm you know, happy to go with him and hang out with him and do that. And it'd be a lot of fun. And um, didn't realize it was Hall of Fame weekend. And they were inducting Sean Dunstan and Mark Grace into the Cubs Hall of Fame. And Randy is a member of the Cubs Hall of Fame, as is Billy Williams and Fergie Jenkins and Ron Sano and a bunch of guys. Ron, of course, not there. He passed away in 2010. But it was amazing to me to get there and realize, oh, this is what we're doing? I kind of picked up on it when I realized that there's a limousine picking us up at Randy's house at 9 o'clock in the morning for a game that doesn't start till 1.10. So I had a great time. It was a, a bit surreal to sit up in the Ricketts executive suite, which is where they parked all the family and friends and the, the hall of famers to see the game from that high up and that view. I never would have imagined that in my entire life. I had one of those, what do they call them? Pinch me moments when I'm sitting, it's probably the fifth inning or so the Cubs won the game and I'm watching home runs go out in the left field thinking I used to sit out there as a kid, get sunburned. And now I'm sitting in the executive box suite with, uh, with Randy Hundley and Billy Williams, I'm sitting between these guys behind them and they're in the front watching the game and I'm sitting in the middle of them uh, eating ice cream out of a miniature Cubs batting helmet. And I'm thinking, how does this happen to a guy like me? But it was a fantastic time. I had a, a nice conversation with Crane Kenny, who was the president of the Cubs, little, learned a little bit more about how the business aspect of it all runs for baseball. Um, those days that I grew up with, of course, were not sustainable and you get to a point where everything has moved forward. So while in my mind, uh, I feel like it should be how it used to be, there's absolutely no way that can that can happen. So, you know, it's begrudgingly, I kind of understand, okay, I get it. Uh, I, I still don't get the fact that you got to pay for a baseball game to watch it on TV. That's, that's pushing it for me. But it's the business model. It's how it works. It's my choice to do it or not. So I'll listen on radio to Pat. Hughes and Ron Coomer do the show. And at this point, that's basically free. If they figure out a way to monitor that, then they've, I think they've alienated Cub Nation. But it was a great experience. And if one of those things where I realized how far my life has come since I used to be a scrawny kid taking the Irving Park bus to Clark Street, walking up Clark to wait in line, as I mentioned, for the bleachers to spend all day there for like $8. And how far my life has come from that time 
And I would have never imagined in my conscious mind that when I was that kid out in left field, looking at Randy Hunley behind the plate as a catcher for the Cubs in the 60s, that we'd be sitting, I mean, it's just, it's, it's way beyond my comprehension. And I've had so many of these experiences with people. Uh, Jerry Kramer is another one. Here's a guy who played for the Lombardi Packers in the, you know, the first two Super Bowls, a 10-year career in the NFL. And I remember probably 1968, his book, Instant Replay, comes out. I'm what, nine going on 10? We're on vacation in Appleton, Wisconsin. My dad buys a razor. And uh, the book Instant Replay was the the gift you get with the razor. You buy, I think it was a Persona electric shave razor or something. And uh, you get the book. It was a paperback. And my dad was a devout Bears fan, hated the Packers with a passion. When he and my Uncle Ronnie would get together, you know, it was like, you know, gloves were off. My Uncle Ron, of course, from uh, Fox River Valley up there in uh, in Wisconsin. So avid Packer fan. And it was a very friendly rivalry, but my dad literally threw the book in the garbage. And I couldn't believe it because my father was a major reader. And we had this huge library in our in our uh, hallway at home. And I thought, my God, my dad's throwing a book out. What's wrong with the guy? Well, I took it out of the, the garbage in the little Hilk, what was the name of that motel? Dreamland Motel. And um, on the three-hour drive, two and a half hours from Appleton back in the day, you know, you drive at 55 miles an hour, uh, I read the whole book, Instant Replay, and I was enamored, not so much with the Packers, but the concept of what the winning piece was, that somehow Vince Lombardi was this this guy that got these guys to do something they didn't think they could do or they were capable of, and it was an amazing outcome. I think that more than anything else was, was the message for me about discipline and teamwork and hard work and repetition, all these things. So when you're nine going on 10, that's like prime time to soak that up. And I did. And now, I mean, I've been friends with Kramer for 35 years, and I don't even know how that happened. So I look at all these friendships in my life and relationships, and some I can pinpoint, you know, exactly where they started and and kind of chart the course. And then there's these other ones, like I said, with Hunley and Kramer and John Denver and Walter Payton and all the people of more name and note. I don't know how that happened. It just happened. I don't know if it's part of my DNA coming into this life experience or it's something that was created. Probably both. And when I think of those things, um, I think about The Wizard of Oz, which is really something I, I used to do a talk on this called Follow the Yellow Brick Road for, I don't know, 10 years. I've done this talk in Chicago, in Chattanooga, in Atlanta, in Aspen, in Trinidad. And it also got me thinking about how much I used to travel to speak. Much easier to sit down on a Saturday morning in front of a microphone without any shoes on. I'd have to get on an airplane to go do a talk. But uh, I, I used to give this talk about called The Wizard of Oz, and it came out of my experience, and it's a common experience we all have because we've all seen the movie. You've got to be living on another planet if you haven't seen The Wizard of Oz. And it came years ago. I was watching it with my kids, and all of a sudden I had like a little epiphany. Hang on. The new coffee cup is begging my attention. Mm-hmm. Fresh ground. <laughs> years ago, my kids were little. I was watching the movie Wizard of Oz, and... I just kind of had this little epiphany about, you know, Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Lion and even the Great Wizard of Oz that somehow I was all part of that. Like those parts were in me as well. And it was almost like a reflection. And I I remember sitting down and kind of writing this out. I don't have all the notes anymore, 
But the gist of it was that there have been times in my life I felt like Dorothy, lost, not sure where to go, uh, not sure what to do. And then you find yourself going through these storms of life being deposited in a different place. And that's exactly how the, the movie really starts with that, that tornado, right? And that uh, the twister takes her and drops her off in the land of Oz and she's dropped off in a place she's never been before. And I don't know how many times in my life that there's been some sort of storm and I get deposited somewhere else that I've never been before. It may look a little familiar, but it's different. And you have to find your way. And this past week, as I was thinking about the whole thing about being at Wrigley Field and all the rest, not knowing how that happened, the storm wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. My, my life went a certain way. And next thing you know, here I am sitting downtown at Wrigley Field in the Ricketts executive box with all these people thinking this is just, this is the, the land of Oz. I'm, I'm deposited here. And when Dorothy is on that path, of course she meets these characters, but nothing happens for her until she's on the path. And I think there's been time, I could tell you times in my life where I think, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here waiting for something to happen. And that something is waiting for me to do something. It's kind of a yin and a yang. It's the, whatever you're seeking is seeking you kind of thing that whatever's out there is also in here. And in order to get there, you got to move here. It reminds me of, you know, the light in, my, in this office, the switch is over there on the wall. Uh, it's not going to turn itself on unless I have the clapper and I don't. So at some point you have to flip the switch in order for things to get going. At some point you have to flick the domino. At some point something has to take place before the path reveals itself. And of course the path is, you know, in, in the Wizard of Oz, it starts out as this tiny little sliver of, of yellow. And that's sometimes hard to find where these paths start, but you, you, you get diligent and the next thing you know, you're moving. And the great late uh, Ojibwa elder, Nawatan Dale Thomas, used to say that the path is always there. We are the ones that veer off. It's not that we've lost our way, it's that the way is, is there, but we're not seeing it. And that's a consciousness shift. And so when I think about how these things work, it really always comes down to the consciousness. What you see, what you see is what you get. That's the bottom line. And as Dorothy goes along, of course, the munchkins come out to help her. These little little nudges this way and that way. And, and uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been on the path and I get a nudge to go here or a nudge to go there. The munchkins come out and say, take a left, take a right, follow the yellow brick road, do this, do that. And... They don't come out, though, unless you're on the path. When those nudges are not there, that's when I get concerned. You can have long stretches where nothing happens. And I'm wondering, is this the right direction? And next thing you know, a phone call, an email, uh, what have you. And paying attention to those munchkins, those nudges, have been paramount. And trusting the process as I go along, even though I can't see the process itself. It's a lot of faith involved in all that. And it's not the kind of faith that you read about on Sunday. It's the kind of faith that you walk on every day. Because to me, that's a huge difference. You know, my folks were never one to go to church. I went to a Presbyterian church because I played basketball for the church team. And on Sunday mornings, I would listen to the Reverend Bob G. Sills just bring the fire and brimstone. This was a guy from the cotton fields who felt the calling upon him one day and went to seminary and became 
Reverend Bob G. Sills. And he was just the perfect guy at the perfect time for me. He was a kind of a broad-shouldered, barrel-chested guy with a big flowing white beard and gap teeth and, uh, you know, wearing a, a blue leisure suit with white boots under his robe and just laid it straight out. And I've always said, you know, I don't remember much of what he said, but I remember how he said it and the energy that he brought and the conviction he brought to his message. And he was one of my first real influences was Bob G. And but in, in that, he's another guy that comes along on the path at the right time, you know, and I don't know how many conversations I had with him over the years about life and death and God and all the rest that goes into that. And he would give me his perspective, his very down-home, down-earth type of thing. And I think that rubbed off on me a lot. And on the path, these people will come, but you, you have to be in it. And of course, the first character that Dorothy runs into is the scarecrow who thinks he needs a brain. And I can't tell you how many times in my life I think I need to be smarter than I am to do what I do. I have a college degree. I earned it. I have a high school diploma. I earned that. And yet, since I got out of college, no one's ever asked to see either one of those pieces of paper. Every now and again, back in the day, I'd have to show my transcripts, you know, for something. But here's the scarecrow stuck in a field with a pole right up his backside, not of his choosing. Somebody put him there. Again, can't tell you how many times I felt like I was stuck somewhere and I, and no, and I didn't have any say over it. And it turned out it wasn't true because as I, my consciousness shifted, then I was able to move in a different direction. But here's the scarecrow. Needs a brain. If he just is smart enough, it'll all work out. So off they go looking for the wizard who's going to give him what he already has but doesn't know. And then they run, of course, into the tin man who is rusted in place because of outside circumstances like rain. And the oil can is right there to set him free. He can't reach it because he's rusted in place by circumstances that are beyond his control. Keep writing this down. I don't know how many times I've been stuck in certain places because of circumstances outside of my control. And you got to wait it out. And you got to sit it out. And those circumstances, in my experience, don't so much define me as they do reveal me of how I'm going to respond to this, whatever that thing might be. There's been so many, I lost count. It doesn't matter what they are. It's all about the setup. How you, will you respond or react to what's being imparted on you? I've talked about this before when it comes to kinesiology and the SAID principle, specific adaptation to impose demands. How do you adapt to the demand life places on you? In kinesiology, it's the study of human movement. Like if I go to the gym and put it, get under the squat rack and put you know, 500 pounds on, which I can't anymore. But if I could, I'd put that weight on my back and I would do the squat movement. And my body would specifically adapt to that weight and that movement. That's what SAID is. But that also is the same thing in our own lives that has nothing to do with the weight room. Think of all the demands that are placed on you, great and small. How do you adapt to those? Really to a great you know, degree determine the success of those things, whatever that might be for you. So there's the tin man stuck in place and they're knocking on him and what's going, how you're stuck in oil can, oil can, just give me the oil can. So they lube him up and next thing you know, he's off dancing, right? Got a great New York accent, probably from Brooklyn. And if he only had a hot, everything would be great. So you got a guy who, first of all, you got the scarecrow who doesn't have a brain, has no idea really where he's going and shouldn't because he's not smart enough. You got the tin man who needs a heart 
in order to get where he's going, and that will complete him. And you got Dorothy who's lost, and Toto the dog is basically the one who's leading everybody. And of course, they come across my favorite guy, the cowardly lion. Oh, oh! <laughs> I get a kick out of that. He's looking for courage. And of course, in order to have courage, you have to have some sort of a medal or something to um, pin on your chest to show that you have courage, of course. And so if, in, in short form, you know, you got this little group looking to find the wizard who's got all the answers for him. And as it turns out, of course, the wizard really doesn't have any answers. It's all a big show. That big floating head there looks like a, you know, it's a big piece of uh, Brussels sprouts. And I am the great wizard of Oz and all the smoke and mirrors behind it. I'm just a man is what he says. I'm just a man. I will give you what you think you need, but it only validates what you already have and just don't know. That's the key to the whole movie to me. How many times that I've sat in meetings and thought, uh, I don't think I belong in here. And then after about 20 minutes thinking, I don't think they belong in here. <laughs> so in the end, of course, it all turns okay for our heroes and the scarecrow gets a diploma. And next thing you know, he has every answer. And the Tin Man, of course, gets a heart. He becomes Mr. Empathy and, and all is well. The lion gets his big medal and his chest pumps up to about 75 inches and he's good to go. And of course, Dorothy thinks she's not getting where she needs to go. And the big lesson of the movie, there's no place like home. You were always there. You're just a couple clicks of the heels away. And I was thinking a lot about that this week. Um, I don't know what I saw about the Wizard of Oz that tripped my trigger, but I started thinking about how many places I gave that talk and what people would come up afterwards and say to me that they'll you know, never see the movie the same way again. I don't know if that was a bad or good thing. But the bottom line was is that we are all those things already. And as a kid growing up going to the YMCA, it was all about mind, body, spirit. And I think about with Dorothy off to the side, I think about smarts, hearts, and courage. Those are the three things that I've had to call upon over and over and over again. And I would suggest that you'd have too. When you're working on a project that means something to you, something bigger than you, when you're dealing with things that have been imparted on you that are difficult, loss, grief, uh, challenge, change, too numerous to mention, are those not the three things, smarts, hearts, and courage that will get you through? Dorothy, of course, is kind of the guide for the whole thing. She just wants to go home. And I, again, I might as well just name this episode. I can't begin to tell you because I can't begin to tell you how many, many times I felt I just wanted to be home somewhere where it's quiet and all this would stop around me, whatever was going on. I just, I want to be home. Home at some point to me meant having opened my eyes, H-O-M-E, having opened my eyes, that these events and these challenges and these changes and the, and the people I was dealing with and all the rest of it was there to simply wake me up more, to open my eyes to the world. You know, Saturday mornings, before I do this, I always warm up with either the Andy Griffith Show or Johnny Quest, the cartoon, on YouTube. One of the great things about YouTube, there's stuff everywhere. And it gets me laughing and makes me feel a little bit like I did when I was a kid before all the world invaded. And I've said this many times over the years. You know, the world, I don't believe, is any more difficult or different 
than it was when I was a kid growing up. I use the 60s as an example. as just a shit show of a decade. And, you know, from the assassinations to the war to civil rights, would you trade today for that? No. So it's so much about perspective. As I said, what you see is what you get. So before I ever get into the mode of attempting to do this podcast, I got to get back to the place of home for myself. And for me, it's laughing a little bit and letting the week go before I can get clear enough, hopefully, to do something that's fairly coherent for people. And I, I think that's so very important to not lose perspective because of the headlines. When you just focus on the headlines, your lifelines start to dwindle. That is not why we're here. It's not. There's a whole industry about headlines. You know, we all know it. As I said before, when I was a kid growing up, there's only four outlets for the news. It didn't feel like the world was ending every second. Now there's 4,000. And it does feel like that. There's always something going on, and 99.9% of it is in our business. I have a, a Yahoo account that I have certain things go through, and every time I check over there, I go down the list of these um, headlines that they want me to, uh, to, to, I guess, read and get involved. What, what am I going to comment on? Everything from new video appears to show GOP Representative Lauren Boebert, who has accused the left of grooming children being fondled by her date at the movie theater. Okay, somebody named Jeezy files for divorce. I don't. Uh, Eddie Grant explained a song, Electric Avenue, to Donald Trump's lawyer in a deposition. It didn't go well. Uh, Trump's getting a lot of press, which I think he probably likes. Woman defending herself after being called a cringe millennial over her overjoyed reaction to IHOP pancakes. Uh, these are headlines? Oprah's still getting beat up for giving a bunch of money to the Maui effort. So these are things I have no control over. Zero. None. Nada. Zip. And yet they get in. If I look at them, they're getting in there. If you are what you eat, then you also are what you listen to and what you see. The same thing, you ingest that stuff. And it's difficult to swim out of it. That's why I turn on the Andy Griffith Show. It's me, it's me, it's Ernest T. I need the break. I need something that has nothing to do with any of this other stuff. Wrap this up today. Um, I want to remind you that you should go buy the Randy Hundley book if you haven't already. Lulu.com. And if you put in the search bar Iron Man, you can buy the book. I think it's uh, not just for baseball people, but it's about his uh, journey, uh, his own yellow brick road, for lack of a better term, from a skinny kid in Virginia to one of the highest paid uh, rookies uh, to being a one-handed catcher in Major League Baseball, which changed the game. And then the innovator of the fantasy camps and all that goes along with it. We've had some great response to that. And uh, we'll be doing some private book signings and things. And it's starting to ramp up a little bit. You know, it's been good to take a little break because the writing took, as I have said before on this show and other ones, about a year to do all that. And then you got the layout and all the rest. And the, the, the amount of pressure that goes into getting it ready for a book launch was substantial. Uh, take a break from all that stuff. And um, we're starting to do some signings and book stuff and things like that. So it's, you know, books like anything else is a marathon. You know, it's, we'll get a pop. It'll run for a while. And then the honeymoon period is over. And the book will continue to sell. And I did this not for the advances Randy and I would get, but for the advances the book would make. And reading it, there's a mirror there to some degree. Anybody who's ever tried to do what they love to do for a living can understand the message of Iron Man. His father taught him to catch. He became a premier catcher. He taught his son Todd. Todd became a premier catcher. So it's pretty, pretty incredible legacy that the Hunleys have imparted on baseball. I want to leave you with this. I, I think I've impressed upon it enough today, but just one more push on that you got to do what you got to do. You know, I, I have people 
on a constant basis, either sending me messages, email, text, whatever, and asking my opinion on if they should do, especially when it comes to media things. I'm like, listen, you have an inner guide. You have a rudder inside. You need to listen to that. It's great to get outside information and validation. No problem with that. But I'm not here to tell anybody how they should or shouldn't do anything. I can give you all the information in the world. I was talking with somebody yesterday who will see if she's going to start a podcast. And uh, I, I cautioned her. You know, this is not about becoming famous. Uh, if it is, you're probably doing it for the wrong reason. Same thing with putting out a book. If you're writing a book to become a bestseller, you might as well get in the back seat and wait. We were at a book sale yesterday uh, up in Lake Forest. We go every year. And I love it. And here's why. So first of all, I get a chance to see all these books, thousands of them, and people grabbing them like they're going out of style. So as much as we talk about technology, uh, print books are still a big deal. Number two, um, I sit there and I look. I'm trying to remember who was it. It was Stephen King. One of Stephen King's books, I, th- I don't remember the title, is like 768 pages. That's, that's like four books of mine in one. I don't know how I could ever write that many pages. To me, I'm like, I'd be glossed over at page 400. I don't have the brain space or the capacity to read long-term like that. So I'm reminded when I see books that are at this book sale that I read growing up, where this comes from for me. I've been looking for an edition of a book called Great Men and Famous Deeds for the Childcraft series. It came out in 1947. We had the book when I was a kid. We had the whole library. I read these chapters about Teddy Roosevelt and uh, Thomas Edison and Jane Addams and Dolly Madison and Abe Lincoln and all, and they were profound to me. They, I mean, got in me. They're all three pages long. And I look at this, because I, I found the, the set yesterday. I'm not going to buy the whole set for one book, but I thought, my gosh, these are only three or four pages long. How is it possible that whoever wrote those short stories was able to put the right combination of words together that I remember them decades later, that they had that much of an influence. So when I work on books that are in print, I think of the same thing. I could say the most I can in the least amount of space and to, and to have that palette to use the right colors, to, for lack of a better term, to paint a picture for the reader that they, are, they don't have to spend. It's not a career to read a book. My highly significant other, Teresa, she could blow through the Stephen King thing. I don't have the brain space. So I try to write the sweet spot that works for me. We'll see if it works for other people. But in all of that, here's the, the big takeaway. Stephen King's 768-page book was three bucks. So he got big bucks on the front end. Major advance to write that book. It was a $45 book when it came out. And if you wait long enough, it's worth three bucks. And I, I tell people this one all the time. I just get the biggest kick out of the fact that myself, John Grisham, and Anne Lamont were all in the bargain bin at the same time. I share that with these famous authors. John Grisham, Anne Lamont, and I were all, our books were touching each other. Like they were all in the same space. And they were all $1.50. I just love it. Now, John Grisham got a shitload of money to write his book. And I'm sure Anne Lamont got a great upfront. My books, I did a, a two-book set years ago. Uh, and got a nice little bit of money up front, which was nice. But to know that we all end up in the same place has great comfort for me. I'm just not sure why. Anyway, if you get a chance and you're interested, Randy Hundley's book is available, as I mentioned, at lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. In the search bar, just put in Iron Man. 
and uh, enjoy the read. If you got Cub fans for Christmas coming up, this is the book to get for them. So uh, we appreciate that. My friend in the uh, Uber musician, David Stoddard, has also been in my mind this past week, and I thought, what a great way to send you off on this Saturday morning with one of my favorite songs from David called Continental Drift. Until next time, be well, safe travels, follow the yellow brick road, and keep the faith. If you stand out on your shore You look out past the waves You might see me looking back at where you are Cause while we both weren't watching We've slowly moved apart Till it seems that our two shores were just too far The continents are moving the stubborn heavy lands But they're really only floating after all Though we never felt it We've slowly moved apart It seems we never noticed it at all And here we are now We're waving across an ocean there is no why, that's just the way of the world So what if now you could reach across the water To try to turn this drifting around well, Someday this will happen from out across the waves there's someone coming right to where you are It happens very slowly It happens all the same Someday you won't be so very far And here we are now We're waving across an ocean There is no why that's just the way of the world So what if now you could reach across the water And try to turn this drifting around Like that ancient story 